0: Right. Good evening, everybody. Nice to see you. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Luke. Brilliant. Um, When was the last time you were persuaded to do something? Are you an easily persuadable person, or are you someone that really sticks to your guns and knows exactly what you want? Um, I was thinking about this for myself, and I was reminded of um, a time we were on holiday. We were in Vietnam, and uh, me and my wife Lauren, and we went on this boat tour in Halong Bay, which is a really nice place. I really recommend it if you ever get the chance to go. Um, So we were on this boat trip, and as part of it, we went on this little excursion. We were on this smaller boat. So it was probably about, um, I don't know, 30 Feet long, and it had um, the deck was kind of up. I don't know how high, maybe about as high as this. And then there was another bit. Higher up here, which is where we were all sitting, so we were there, and we're, you know, it was really nice to bring you drinks and things and just relaxing. And there was a whole bunch of Dutch guys there. Now I don't know about you, but I find Dutch people really quite annoying sometimes because um, they have that really annoying genetic um, advantage over me. They're all very tall, they tan easily, they've got beautiful blonde hair, and they're just generally quite cool. So I was there, and I was just kind of feeling a bit, you know, a bit inadequate. Oh, I'm not as cool as these Dutch guys, which I was, and. Um, so they, they were like, oh, you know what would be really fun? It would be if we jumped off this top section into the sea, which, yeah, great idea. So they start doing this. Now, the, as a safety precaution, they had about a three-foot-high fence around that top part there. So when you were going to jump off, you kind of had to jump and then lift up like this. Now, if you know me, you'll know that sporting agility is probably not my strongest point. So, these guys were doing it, and then I was like, oh, I really want to do that. And I was like, Laura, I, like, I think I think I might give it a go. And then she said, I don't know if it's a good idea. So, um, I was like, okay, okay, well, I'll just leave it, I'll just watch. And then one of the guys was like, well, why don't you give it a, or I can't do a Dutch accent. Why don't you, no, I'm terrible. Uh, they were saying, why, why don't you give it a go? So, I, I said, okay, great. So... Um, So I came up and I was like, okay, do this, quick prayer. Okay, on we go. So we run and then take a jump. But the thing I didn't quite realize is that if you're jumping over something, you have to lift your knee up, not put it down like this. So I smacked my knee and then kind of did this kind of hinge pivot pivot, and went down. Now, I actually think it was God that protected me because I went down head first and just missed the side of the boat and fell into the water. Then I look up and I see all these beautiful Dutch people looking over me and being like, are you all right? Are you all right? And, um, anyway, thankfully it was okay. My, just, my, um, just my pride was a bit um, bruised. But we're going to talk tonight about God persuading us, what God does to persuade us of his goodness, what God does to persuade us of his glory and his reality. And we're going to look at a story of Jesus engaging with a guy um, which will speak to us about that. So if you've got your Bible with you or if you've got your app, please turn to Luke chapter 7. Are we looking at verses 1 to 10? So I was trying to get it all in one slide. It's a bit compressed. Hope it's okay. Hope you can see it. Um, so let's read the passage together. Let's read the whole thing. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. This is Jesus. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, "'He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue.' And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, "'Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof.' Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Great, I'm just going to pray quickly and just ask um, because that's the Holy Spirit to come. God, I just pray that you would send your Holy Spirit. We just come to your word and we thank you for it, Lord God. It's so deep and inexhaustible, which just echoes your depth, Lord, and your inexhaustible goodness and your grace. Father, I pray for you to send your Holy Spirit just now. Help us to understand your word, to learn from it, and to hear from you. And we pray that we would see you in your word tonight. Amen. Great. So I'm going to give you a quick overview of the book of Luke, just so we can know where we are. This story is found in um, the fourth section of the book of Luke. So um, the book of Luke has got very clear, delineated parts of it. It starts with an introduction um, where he kind of says why he's writing the book. Then it, starts, then it goes on to the birth narrative, so saying about how Jesus was born and a little bit about his early childhood. Then there's the section which is the preparation for Jesus' ministry, so a lot about John the Baptist there. And then we get into this fourth section, and this section covers Jesus' early ministry. So if we could turn to the, get the slide next slide up. Thank you. So um, this is a map of Israel in the time of Jesus. So Jesus was from the north. So he lived in, I don't know if you quite see it there, but in that region of Galilee. So he had spent most of his childhood in Nazareth. And then when he was a bit older, he moved to this other town called Capernaum. So if you can move on to the next slide, which will just zoom us in to Galilee. So this fourth section really follows Jesus as he moves around all the different towns. So he goes around all these different towns and And preaches. So he'd go into a town. He would teach. He'd say, um, tell them about the coming kingdom of God, and often would perform miracles. So in this story, he is coming back, and he's just finished um, preaching this long sermon, which uh, Luke records. And then he comes back into Capernaum. So for Jesus, this is like him coming back to not the town he's from, but the town he's lived in. So he's kind of coming home as he comes as he comes into here. Galilee was this administrative region, so it's a bit like if you think of Scotland, you can think of the Highland region. So, and then for a comparison, you could say Jesus was from Nairn. Um, I don't know why I picked Nairn, it's quite a cool name. And then it was almost like he moved to Inverness when he got older, so, um, and this is him going around different towns in the Highlands, and then um, he finally comes back to Inverness where he um, has spent a lot of time. So let's look at verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. So um, Capernaum was quite a small town, they think. They think it was roughly about 1,500 people, which for them was decent size, but for now is absolutely tiny. So it was really just a wee village. Um, and it says in other sections that Jesus had earlier performed many miracles in this, um, this town already. It says earlier that people had been absolutely astonished at Jesus' teaching. It says that um, they were astonished because whenever he spoke, his word had real power. So he would have been well known in the town already. So we've gone to verse 2. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. So we've got this centurion. He actually probably wasn't a Roman centurion. It looks like the Romans didn't perform this role in this part of the world until a bit later than this time. So he was probably a centurion who was working for Herod, who was the puppet king who um, had been installed by the Romans. So he wasn't a Jew, Probably wasn't a Roman either, but we don't so we don't really know what his ethnicity was, but he wasn't wasn't a Jew. And he would have been a kind of mercenary, really. So he was getting paid to run this um, local army for Herod. So he led a hundred men, and he was obviously very well thought of in the town. He was a guy who'd um, even though he came in as a Gentile, as someone who was very different, he managed to win the people around and seems to have been very, very well thought of. Um, It says as well they had a servant who was sick. So the word here for servant refers to a a lifelong servant, someone who's been in his service for many years. And and he obviously really cared about him or her. We don't know their, their sex. But they were obviously really very sick. So they're lying on their deathbed. And the centurion's really concerned You can imagine he's probably tried everything else. He's got the doctors round, and as usual, they're not very good. And then um, they um, are worried about what to do. So they say, oh, I'm going to go to Jesus. I know that he's healed people before. I've seen him do it. We're going to ask him. Verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. So the centurion had obviously heard about Jesus before. But he decides to not go himself, but rather to send some Jewish elders to speak on his behalf. He was actually being very respectful by doing that. And the culture of the time, that was a real mark of respect. It shows that he really understood Jewish culture. He'd obviously taken a lot of time to study it and really, really knew it. And And as well, he didn't demand it. You can kind of imagine this military ruler saying, you come here right now and heal my servant. But actually, he just puts in a polite request and the Jewish elders, remarkably, agree to go. It's actually quite funny that they would agree to do this. This mercenary army leader who um, works for this corrupt king asks them to help. And they say, yeah, of course, we, we love you. We love what you've done for our town. We will definitely go and do this for you. It says that um, in the next verse, um, it says that he loved the Jewish people um, He knows about God. He's probably what um, Luke refers to later as a person, as a God-fearer. So he has this awareness of God, but he hasn't actually come to the place where he's entered into God's community of people either. So let's look at verses four and five. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation and he is the one who built our synagogue. He is worthy to have you do this for him. Notice their choice of words. This word worthy in Greek is axios, and it refers to, um, it's actually from the root word for weights. So the idea is that if you had a set of scales, that this, um, this quality is an equal weight to the thing being measured against it. So really what they're saying is that he has met the standard, that this guy is acceptable to them. So they they say this because it says that he loves the Jewish people and also because he's built them a synagogue. So he's obviously the kind of guy who knows how to get the Jewish elders to like him. So really what they're saying is, Jesus, if anyone deserves a miracle, it's this guy. You should really do it. To be honest, he deserves it. And the thinking is that God will bless the worthy, that those who are good should have good things come to them. Now, this can be different things, but this philosophy is still around today. Some people think that if you're good, then God will give you material blessings. If you're good, then God will give you health and wealth. Whatever you want, if you give to God, he will give back to you. I'm sure many of you have heard this before, whether looking online or um, different resources, and it's a really tempting message. I think what is really tempting to people about it is there's a practical thing that you can do. I need this thing, and therefore I'll do this other thing, and then God will have to help me. It's actually quite nice. It also keeps us in control. It says, well, I know what's best for me, and God, this is what's best for me, and I'm going to make you do this thing for me. I want to choose what I get and I want to choose when I get it. Essentially, I'm still in the driver's seat. This is a strong cultural message that we live, live amongst today. Make a plan, dream a dream, find out what you want to do and then go for it. I don't know if you um, remember careers advice at school, but it was always very much like that, wasn't it? It was like, well, what do you want to do? This is how you do it, and, and keep going. I always felt really sorry for the guidance counsellor who was kind of trying to get a kid to, um, you know, to give them some guidance. So like, what do you want to do? And they're like, oh, I don't know. And, and then it's really hard, isn't it? And you might have been in that situation yourself. You might be in that situation now where you're like, I just, I just don't know what to do. The centurion saw God differently. He saw his relationship with God differently. It wasn't transactional but was built on faith. So let's read verses 6 and 7. Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. So the centurion still doesn't go himself. He sends friends and he says to Jesus, I'm, I'm not worthy. So Luke here repeats the same word three times, this worthy word. So the Jewish people say, look, the centurion is worthy. The centurion in verse six says, I am not worthy. And then in verse seven, it's slightly hidden in the English. But when it says, I did not presume to come, he actually says in Greek, I did not count myself worthy to come to you. So just as a little tip for Bible reading, if you ever see the same word repeated in a short space, you really have to, oh gosh, what's, what's the author trying to say to me here? It's a very deliberate ploy that the Bible authors often use. And Luke does it here. So really what, what we're seeing is that the centurion had a more realistic view of himself than the Jewish elders did of him. The centurion was saying, yes, I've done some good things, but he recognises the disorder that's still in his heart. He doesn't always do good. He often does wrong. Sometimes he does really wrong. Compared to Jesus, he's nowhere close. The centurion doesn't come to Jesus on his own merit. Yet, in spite of that, he has confidence in Jesus. He believes wholeheartedly that Jesus' word has power, And like the others in Capernaum who were astonished at the power of Jesus' words before, the centurion believed that Jesus could heal his servant with just a single word. And so in verse 8, the centurion gives his reasoning for this. Now, I didn't print this out, so I'm going to have to um, look at this here. Um, Say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So what the centurion is, he's actually using an army term here. So when he says, I'm under authority, he's using a technical term which would have been used in the army there. So he is a centurion. So he's got people above him, and he's got people below him as well. Those who are above him, he has to obey. If they say, look, we need an army over here, he has to go. If they say, you need to structure it this way, he has to do it. But also there are those under him who must obey what he says, like the servant that he talks about there. If people obey him, even though he's actually quite a lowly guy, he was only a centurion in a small backwater town in the middle of nowhere. If people obey him, how much more is this true for Jesus? who has no one over him and is Lord of all. He has authority over everything, and the centurion believes this. In coming to Jesus, he realizes that actually everything is under Jesus' authority. He says, this is what I ask of you, but then he leaves it to Jesus. He submits to the superior authority. He trusts that Jesus is powerful and able to change things with a single word, He also trusts that Jesus is good and trustworthy, and he can ask things of him, but also leave things with him as well. Even the things most important to us the health of our friends, our security in work, our financial situation we can trust Jesus with this. We've got all these questions we ask, don't we? Where should I live? What should I focus on? What should I use my time on? Where should I work? We can ask Jesus to do things for us, but we can also believe that he is trustworthy, that he will guide us, and that at the right time he will give us guidance and also the ability to do things. So when Jesus sees the centurion, he's absolutely amazed. He can hardly believe what he hears. He says he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had, seen, had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So, Jesus, when he says this, he says, not even in Israel have I found this faith. This is a slight dig, I think, at the Jewish elders who were there. They claimed that the centurion deserved a favor, but yet this Gentile, this guy who's supposed to not know the first thing about God, um, he gets it. He gets who Jesus is. He gets his authority. To be honest, in this story, the last person someone who was from this area would have expected to have a deep, genuine faith in Jesus is a centurion. He's the last guy you would think. The army is not known as a place where great faith develops in God. It's a place where um, people have to be hard. They have to make tough decisions. They have to kill. And actually in that, in that atmosphere, God has worked on this guy's heart. Isn't it amazing when you think about this for our city We live in this area and I think we can often just think, you know, I think it's only people like me who God could be at work in. And it's natural that we would do that. That's our story. That's how we know, how we came to know God. But who is God working in at the moment? What people in Gorgi just now are sitting who God has planned a powerful prophetic gift for who just need to hear the gospel? What people are in Craig Miller who are struggling financially, but actually God has given a gift of faith who, with the gospel preached to them, could start something which would bless the whole city, the whole nation. How many future church leaders don't know the first thing about God just now? God has given us this great city to live in. There are 500,000 people here. God is at work at the moment, and we often just don't know what he's doing think about it for yourself in your story key times if you if you're a christian here tonight key times when you when god was working in you i think most people wouldn't have had a clue if they met you in a cafe they wouldn't have known what god was doing but god works in our deep in the deepest areas in our hearts We need to have faith that when we go out, when we speak the gospel and when we share Jesus, that he is already at work in people. People in your work who you think that person is so far from God might be this far away and all they're waiting for is a word from you. Maybe all they need to hear from you is something positive about Jesus and if God's at work in them, they'll come and ask. It's such a great encouragement to us that we can share our faith, that we can just say one word and trust that God has got plans and that he is working in people. So let's look a bit more about this faith that Jesus commands. What's Jesus meaning by it? Luke was preaching on faith this morning, and it was it was a great preach. Can't have to say it because he's here, but it actually, genuinely, was a really good preach. Um, so um, I would recommend listening to it if you weren't there. But the word used here in Greek is pistis, um, and it means to be persuaded of something. It means to be convinced that something is true. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe Says to be persuaded that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him isn't it weird that faith the word isn't an active word but it's a passive word that was really interesting to me that it actually is a passive thing God is the one who persuades me I'm not the one who makes myself persuaded, but rather God is the one who calls faith out of me. He is the one who reveals himself and persuades me of who he is. We can read convincing evidence about Jesus, and if you read the historical facts about his resurrection and what people had, it's, it's hard to come to any other conclusion than something remarkable happened here, and I think that Jesus raised, was risen from the dead. You can hear other people's testimonies of how God has come into their heart and changed them deeply, But in the end, it's a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to convince us, to persuade us that God is good and that he will reward us. It's not something we can drum up ourselves. It's a gift of God. Ephesians 2 verse 8, it is not by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So just think about this for a second. You can't give yourself more faith. It just seems crazy, doesn't it? It's like, actually, I can't do this thing myself. Rather, we receive faith from God as we see his revelation. So God reveals himself to us, and then we are persuaded that that is true. As we see who God is, what he says and what he does, we're more and more persuaded that he's trustworthy. We're more and more persuaded that he's good. And we're more and more persuaded that we can trust him with every area of our lives. So if we can't grow faith ourselves, then how does faith grow? As I say, faith grows as a work of God in our hearts when we see his revelation. Romans chapter 10, verse 16 and 17 says, they have not all obeyed the gospel. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. So this hearing he's talking about, is not just the auditory, auditory sensation of hearing, but also the spiritual element of taking God's word on board. It's referring here to the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus, but it's equally true for every part of the Bible. But you take it on board and you think about it. This is why Bible study is so important. It's really great to read the Bible and read a whole book, but actually whenever we really engage with it and work through it and meditate on it and ask tough questions of it, God works in our heart and persuades us of the truth. This is why small group, is one of the many reasons why small group is just fantastic. When you're studying the Bible with other people, you hear other people's opinions, you hear people ask a question, you're like, I never would have thought about that before. What is the answer to that? And as we work through it, as we chew this word together, God works in us and convinces us. Also, it's a fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians, it says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and then faithfulness, which is actually the same, exact same word that was used elsewhere. As we engage with the Spirit, faith is made alive. When you're speaking to someone and you feel the Spirit saying, you know, just, just mention Jesus, if we follow through with that and we see fruit come from it, that builds our faith up as well. As we engage with the Spirit, we're convinced more and more that God is real and that we will be rewarded when we seek him. So if you're feeling tonight that your faith is a bit low, don't try and drum it up. That's often the the temptation in worship, isn't it? If you're singing a song, you're like, I just don't feel this tonight. And there's this real temptation, but okay, well, I'll just put my hands up a bit more and I'll sing a bit louder and I'll do this. Don't, just, just say, God, I'm just not feeling it. Convince me again, persuade me of this truth that's there. Read and engage with his word and community. The centurion had this faith he had heard the revelation of Jesus. He was persuaded by God that the testimonies about Jesus were true and he had faith to submit to Jesus' rule and to trust him for the future. Jesus is still looking for this kind of faith. He's not looking for those who think they are good enough to serve him. He's not looking for those who think they deserve to have him help them, but those who've been persuaded that he is God and that he is powerful. He can then do the impossible in your life and also in our city. So if you're not a Christian here this evening, maybe God's at work in you. Maybe you realize that you're not worthy of Jesus, that you don't deserve anything from him. If you're thinking that way tonight, then you're in a really good place. Holy Spirit is working in you and if you if this is what you feel, if you identify with this, you don't feel good enough for God, then you have to realise that you don't actually meet God's standard at all. His standard is perfect and holy, and that's what he asks, us, asks of us. Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, which we can't do, but this is the good news of the Gospel, that Jesus died in your place and takes your sin upon himself and gives you his right standing before God as a free gift, and you can have that this evening. For those of you who have already trusted Jesus, how's your faith? How is your faith tonight? Do you believe that Jesus is God? This man we're reading about, when you hear these stories, do you think, yep, that was God in human flesh walking on the earth? Do you believe Jesus is powerful enough to change situations with just a single word? What would you like him to change for you? Where do you need God's power? Maybe you want to see God's power to see family members saved. Maybe you want God's power to see him moving in your workplace. Maybe you want God's power to help you with friends or family situations, relationship difficulties, finances. Let's ask him tonight together with a renewed faith. Maybe your faith is weak. It's not a case of you realizing your faith is weak and pulling it together, but rather asking God to strengthen your faith. So we're going to do that together. But also let me just encourage you as well. This Really, your faith has grown so much by um, engaging with the Bible. Just ask God to speak to you through it and give some time to reading it and believe that God can strengthen your faith. So let's just take a moment to be before God. Um, if you're not a Christian here tonight, I'd just really like to invite you to ask God to persuade you. If I can just get you to... Just say, God, I, I don't even know if you're real, but if you are, I know you can hear me. Please persuade me of this truth. I'm up for it, God. I'm up for listening. I'm up for seeing what you say. Persuade me, Lord. And if you are a Christian already here tonight, I feel, I feel God wants to increase our faith as a church together. That God wants to... Help us to be persuaded that the impossible task that is before us of seeing many people in Edinburgh saved, of seeing Scotland turn around, of seeing our culture healed, (laughs) it's possible because Jesus is powerful and his word is powerful. He has done this before. As we look around and we see our culture, I was speaking to a policeman recently and he just said, Our society is falling apart. And many people feel like this. And they say, well, what's the answer? There seems to be so many forces at work. The answer is Jesus. And we as a church have the wonderful and scary duty of telling people about him. But he can help us do this. And I feel that tonight he's going to increase our faith in that. And as I say, it's not something we drum up ourselves but God persuades us that he is able to do this. So if you're up for just praying with me, that God will persuade us of this and move us to action, just put your hands out with me and let's just pray together. Jesus, we acknowledge that you are God. We acknowledge that you are powerful, that you have turned Crazily bad cultures around before. Look at the Roman Empire turned for you, Jesus, and that you can do this again in the West, in Scotland, in Edinburgh. You can do this. But Lord, we are weak and our faith often feels so small. Persuade us, Lord. Persuade us of your power. Persuade us of your goodness. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Help us to be obedient. And help us to see you at work. Thank you, God. Thank you, God.